Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we like to bring you Weird Comics History every week, except uh, now we're doing it on our own show. Indeed. Uh, still on the same feed as the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast, so if you're subscribed to that, you will get our podcast seated in there also. And if you're not subscribed, well, you should probably think about doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week, we decided to tackle for our first uh, inaugural solo episode. Chris and I decided to do a really simple topic uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't be a lot of research or a lot of work for us at all. We decided to tackle the comics code authority. Yeah, 15, 15 minutes in and out. That's all. This will be this will be a nice quick one, folks. And of course, <laughs> you know the way we do it. Uh, of course, it's going to be totally incomplete. So. <laughs> <laughs> let's just jump. Let's just jump right to it and talk about how comics were before the code. Uh, I'm not going to go back to the first ever comics in the uh, 30s. Uh, what we're really talking about is superhero comics. Uh, mm-hmm. That would have really started obviously with Superman in 1938. Uh, by 1940, they were pretty much all the rage. Uh, most comics on the stands were superhero comics, and they were. Uh, very jingoistic. They were very pro-American because even though we weren't involved in World War II yet, we wouldn't get involved until December 7th, 1942. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we were still on the side of the Allies. We still knew that Hitler and uh, Hirohito and, I guess, to a smaller extent, Mussolini had to be stopped. Yeah, they were bad dudes. So, yeah, we, we, people, <laughs> people knew that. I mean, there's even, a further, there's even a further thing we could say about, you know, most of the early comics industry having been Jewish and knowing that Jews' rights were being uh, removed in Germany. If, if you didn't outright know about the camps being erected, you knew, sure. you knew that it was unfair over there and uh, we knew it was hard times over there yeah hitler was a bad fella those are so those early comics uh you know when you think of those wartime comics you think of the first captain america uh cover date march 1940 him punching hitler in the face mm-hmm. uh you know that pretty much is sort of embodies all of the comics of that era of that decade uh they were often pretty racist too yeah um that's something i think it needs to be said and not just against uh, the Germans and the Japanese, but against uh, uh, blacks and Hispanics and pretty much every culture that wasn't white. Yeah, everyone was, they were stereotyped to like the nth degree. It was, you know, it was the, it was like the, uh, the like the Sambo drawings, you know, it was. Definitely. Big, big lips, uh, mm-hmm. wide Cold eyes. black skin, yep. And, and, and this would even be guys that weren't, you know, I mean, usually these guys were holding positions like porters and whatever else, but, uh. You know, th- this this wasn't even necessarily guys that were there for comic effect. This is just the way they drew black people at the time. Sure. Comics, that's the way they looked at the time. And uh, on the home front, there was a lot of rationing happening. Uh, you know, there were paper drives and a lot of other material like copper, rags, glass, rubber, uh, metal of any kind. Uh, so comics were part of that. They would get yeah. bundled up and shipped off to the recycler. Uh, who would then use them, I guess, to make notepads for the front line or whatever. Actually, you know, a lot of that paper went into as wadding in bullets. Okay. Uh, so, you, you know, they, they did actually need it. Um, interesting, because we have not rationed for war in our lifetimes and for even no. our parents' lifetimes. So, you know, this, this was a different, different attitude, I think, towards uh, the war in general, that people were willing to, uh, you know, support yeah. the war effort. Yeah, the war effort was universalized, yeah. Uh, and, you know, comics and newspapers, uh, where they were, you know, just expected to be thrown away anyway. It was almost like, you know, this is a gimme. You know, wrap them up. They're just cluttering up the house anyway. Wrap them up, send them to the recycler. 
Ironically, you know, in, in at least in New York City, after the war, they wouldn't be recycling again until 1980s. So yep. <laughs> it was like they were they were going green for the war for the war purpose, but that would not come back come back again. So uh, we couldn't we couldn't buy like bags, boards, and long boxes back in the forties. Probably not. No, they probably wouldn't uh. have, wouldn't have allowed that back then. <laughs> also, the also plastic manufacturing was a lot different. They probably would have blown up in your hands or disintegrated <laughs> or something. Though the uh, the bags would have grown a third arm. Uh, another big difference in, in, uh, at the home front was that women joined the workforce in droves because the men uh, were largely being taken away to war, although it's worth saying that 350,000 women did serve in the armed forces at home and abroad. That, that figure kind of surprised me. It, did, it surprised me also. Uh, you got to think, though, this, these women, none of them would have been in the infantry. No, you know they would have they would have probably had a lot of administrative positions, or although, nursing, or yeah, exactly. But th- there there was a big contingent. There was an Air Force uh, regiment. Actually, I, I don't have it written here, but they uh, were recognized in the 21st century for their war service uh, after sort of just being lumped in with, you know, grunts. So that's amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's there's definitely a very interesting story. Then not really. Specific to comics, but specific to World War II. Uh, a, a worthwhile book to read, actually, uh, if I can just name check it, is a book called uh, Echoes of a Distant Thunder by Edward Robb Ellis, and it's about the home front during World War II, and it would include a lot of this information in better detail. Um, beyond that, it's, uh, a lot of women did go to work. Uh, the em- female employment rose from 27 to 37% during the war, which is a pretty huge jump. With 25% of married women finding jobs, uh, this is amazing because usually you got you, when you got married, it meant that your working life had concluded. Yeah, uh, you're, or you you're were, personal. Yeah. yeah, you were a homemaker now, and that that was the only job going to be available, or uh, you know that that that's why you were getting married in a lot of ways. Um, so this left a lot of latchkey kids. Uh, the, ours was not the first generation to have that <laughs> applied to us. Uh, a lot of kids came home to nothing. Um, their parent, their mom was out working, dad was away at war, and comics sort of filled the gap a little bit, uh, sure. gave the kids something to do. This is, again, before TV. The radio would have been around, but, you know, if you get bored of what's on the radio, you only had three stations. So yeah, we're talking about the war, probably. Exactly. You know, you don't want to hear about the war all day. Well, you might pick up a comic book, and what's in the comic book more about the war? But at least it was in four color. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and and the final reason, which I think uh, the final thing about nineteen uh, forties comics, I think is important to remember, is that these were meant uh, to stimulate our soldiers overseas. You know, we sent millions of comics over. They were hugely popular, and typically it was the comics with the ladies in them. Wonder Woman was huge to them. Uh, Mm -hmm. They didn't have any, you know, they they didn't get a lot of ladies over there, you know? It's like, uh, you might have to be out in the field for months at a time, and uh, any drawing of a woman would would suffice, I think, for a lot of these guys. So this was the nature of them. They They were sort of Violent, but they were pro-American. They were sort of sexy, but they were racist. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were definitely doled out to children as well as soldiers uh, for the reasons, you know, because the, the moms were away and because the dads were away at, at war. So they, they, they served a lot of purposes, and uh, people just sort of allowed them to be for that entire era. Certainly. Yeah, that was... Uh... Well, now we're going to meet somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to meet uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham. 
He was uh, born in uh, 1895, March 20th, in Munich. His uh, birth name was... Let me see if I can even give this uh, uh, Michael College try I, here. I, I didn't tell Chris this, but I put all these German names in to make you pronounce them. <laughs> so let's, let's let's give it the old college try here. We got here Friedrich Ignatz Wertheimer. Very good. I think that's that's close enough. Yeah, Friedrich <laughs> Ignatz Wertheimer is good Wertheimer. enough. and uh, he studied at King's College, London. Um, Conjecture he might have done it to avoid fighting in World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, really not too much of a slide on him because it, it, this was and, and still kind of is a common practice. Um, but uh, at the time, you know, like nowadays, it's pretty easy to go to school if you want to. Um, this uh, the fact that he went to this school. It pretty much implies that he wasn't really struggling for money. He was able to afford such a privilege at the time. Sure. Uh, more about King's College London. It was founded by King George IV and the Duke of Wellington in 1829. The uh, school was open to women during World War I, and uh, notable alumni include John Keats, Boris Karloff, Desmond Tutu, yeah. um, which is pretty... I like the note you put here. Pretty much every person ever named in a worldwide conspiracy theory. Yeah, whenever you read about the Bilderbergers or the, you know, yeah. the CFR, these are, all, these are all graduates of King's College London. You know, it seems <laughs> like they just crank these guys out. Yeah, and uh, Florence Nightingale actually opened the first nursing school here. Now, I just want to make a little note in case, and I'm, I, what's crazy is I'm sure no one will even call us out on it, but technically speaking, she created a nursing school that was absorbed by King's College London okay. in the mid-19th century. But for all intents and purposes, I think that, you know, and it's been, it's been that, 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 that's been their college ever since for nursing. Mm-hmm. So it's a King's College school. I think we can, we can put that there. Sure. Uh, so. Yeah, and uh, he also studied at uh, German universities in Munich and Erlangen. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, wound up getting his doctorate from the University of Würzburg mm-hmm. in uh, 1921. That school was founded in 1402, uh, permanently established in 1582 uh, by Julius Eckder von <laughs> Mespelbrunn. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the uh, Prince he Bishop was... of Würzburg. Würzburg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... F- and, uh, 1402, you know. A long time ago. So you know, America <laughs> as we know it has not even been discovered yet. You know, I just, yeah, well, I just want to point still that flat. out. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it, it was a strange. It was an old school even then. Yeah, and uh, the, the uh, there are, are nine Nobel well, blah, nine Nobel laureates uh, are alumni of this uh, of this uh, prestigious uh, university here. Yep. Um, uh, Wortham was invited to the United States in 1922 to work under Adolf Meyer, or Mayer, um, who is a uh, who was at the time a 56-year-old psychiatrist in chief at Johns Hopkins. He uh, practiced psychobiology, which uh, which he called ergasia. I should know this. Ergasiology. <laughs> well, I don't think anyone's used this term since about 1922. Yeah, this is- uh, yeah, this might be in the textbook once or twice. It's, but. A, it's a combination of two Greek words whose, I, I forget the root words, but uh, mm-hmm. psychobiology is a pretty good description of it. Uh, you know, you're going to go into it a little bit here, but I think it's important to note this as this is really, I think, instrumental in Frederick Wortham's uh, understanding of the human mind and how he would later go on to treat 
uh, humans, people, humans. Oh yeah, this is the, <laughs> this is like the the foundational building blocks of his of his social outlook. Yeah. Um, psychobiology focuses on the biological, social, and psychological factors in a person, uh, as opposed to treating them. You know, just saying that they are sick in the head. This is. This is a change, uh, you know. If you see those old film reels of uh, sanitariums in the first half of the century or sure. early first half of the century, it's it's terrifying. Yeah. But uh, you know, we're we're in the Freudian era now. Uh, back then, anyway, and uh, things are lo- being looked at a little bit different. Yes, um, you know, the setting was was being looked at as as contributing to mental health. Uh, yeah. And I think that Wortham, well, really, I guess uh, Aldolf Meyer and then Wortham also took it kind of a step further to, to further divide the things that could contribute to uh, yeah, this your is, mental uh, condition. This is basically when the nature versus nurture argument was starting to was starting to rear its ugly head. Yep. Which uh, we in the pseudo field are, uh, we pretty much know the nature versus nurture argument as the argument that ends all conversations. Yeah. Because you're not you're not going to talk about anything else. That's the Hitler of psychology, right? That's... It is. It, that's, yeah, you get Godwin with uh, with nature versus nurture. If you're ever in a uh, a post grad psychology class, that is uh, that is where the conversation ends because it's just people are very very hot about that subject and and the, the problem with it is, is that there's just so much on both sides yeah and uh, you know I, I like to think personally that there's a mixture of the two uh, I think that that <laughs> probably makes the most sense frankly it's a little yeah, bit I, your chocolates <laughs> and my peanut butter you know it's not yeah, uh, it's yeah. not like it's one still is, del- it's still delicious yeah <laughs> you know uh, you know but that's that's uh, another podcast entirely yes it is yes, uh, it is. I think it's I think it's worth saying also that he introduced the concept of uh, creating detailed case studies when researching uh, you know, this this sounds like a obvious thing now. You know, you go into your therapist oh, sure. and they take notes and they, you know, create charts and whatever. Back then, a lot of times, psychiatric care was you went in, you said you were depressed, and they gave you morphine or they gave you laudanum or they gave you, you know, cocaine. You know, like in a lot of ways, it's similar to what you find now uh, with uh, the way the psyche, the way the uh, pharma, pharmaceutical industry is, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Back then, it, it, the psychoanalysis was not so popular that everyone engaged in it. Or you went well, it was, to the, you it went was to almost the, witchcraft. I think to a lot of people, you know, this idea of just sitting and talking and revealing yourself. I mean, if you were rich, you went to the sanatorium sure. for, for three months, you know. And if yeah, you, you had your vacation. If you were crazy, they threw you in prison. You know, that, that was really it. So he was the guy, he was the first guy that was like, he'll sit and talk with you over a series of months and maybe even years to create a detailed... <laughs> Uh, case study uh, history, uh, yeah. which I which and, is pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, because you know when you get you get a whole bunch of case studies, you start to start to notice trends. You start to be able to you, you get the fuel that nature versus nurture uh, argument because if you're if you're seeing ten people and eight of them had a very similar childhoods and have very similar symptoms, you can kind of start to draw some correlation. You start to draw a correlation, and, yeah. and and you can also start to speak about groups. In a more authoritative way, instead of just saying, "Well, you know, this group is poor and stupid because they were born that way." That's it. You know, yeah. I mean, this 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 whole idea of psychobiology biology starts to erode the idea of eugenics, which mm-hmm. is the which mm-hmm. is the belief that we are genetically predisposed to our state, our uh, you know, place in life, and this sort of chips away at that, uh, among many other things happening in the uh, you know first first part of the 20th century. So, but this was all part of that. All right, now uh, Wortham would go to the Henry Phipps Psychiatric Clinic in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, which was uh, 
which was Adolf Mayer's place. You know, he oversaw its construction and development. It was part of the Johns Hopkins Hospital, founded in 1889. Very famous medical institution. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, growing up, I always wondered why there was an S after John. <laughs> there were, probably because there were ten of them. I think maybe. John was a very popular name in those days. It was like a, it was like George Foreman's kids. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> George's Foreman's Hospital. Uh, the, uh, this hospital uh, had uh, some famous things happen there. You know, it was the first male-to-female uh, sex reassignment surgery in the United States in uh, 1966. Also, psychiatric research kind of changed there. Uh, in, you know, 1972, the discovery of the brain's natural opiates kind of kind of brought interest in neurotransmitters, which, uh, you know, it, like we said here, it just, it really affects the way things are researched today. Definitely. It's, uh, you know, it's it's weird to think about that now because, you know, we all know, and any of those, uh, those pharma commercials, they claim to affect or defect uh, so, certain transmitters. I mean, that's pretty much how all these drugs work, is to either inhibit or to excite yep. their production. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like even... You know, people that don't have any psychiatric, uh, you know, the, everyone seems to have a foundation in this now, you know what I mean? Some yes. kind of an understanding about neurotransmitters going from chemical to electrical to its chemical. And, uh, you know, people did know about neurotransmitters before this. I don't, I don't want to make it seem like Johns Hopkins discovered yeah. them. But by discovering that, you know, the, the, the brain was creating opiates, they started to realize that these neurotransmitters were actually affecting things like mood. Mm -hmm. uh, and thought, and and as I'm sure you know, it really is the basis of everything now. Is is just dealing with around these neurotransmitters. So mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. a pretty uh, landmark, pretty uh, groundbreaking thing to discover. Um, Absolutely. Going on from this, uh, Frederick Wertham married Florence Hesketh, uh, became a U.S. citizen, and changed his name all in 1927 when he was 32 years old. I have to assume. That he wanted to get himself established, you know. Oh, absolutely. That was all. He wanted to make sure that he was, uh, you know, doing what he wanted to do and making a living. And then he took this woman's name in, uh, you know, took her hand in matrimony. I don't really know a whole lot about Florence Hesketh. Kind of would like to know more about her, but I just yeah. <laughs> and then in uh, this would this would be Watershed. He moved to New York in 1932 for a senior staff position at the Bellevue Mental Hygiene Clinic, Bellevue. Mm -hmm. uh, you probably remember, Chris, growing up in New York, people yep. say, and I'm going to, you know, when you're acting crazy, I'm going to send you to Bellevue. I'm send you to Bellevue. Uh, <laughs> Bellevue is, is uh, the oldest public hospital in the United States, founded in 1736. So this would have been founded by the Crown, folks. Uh, mm -hmm. This would have been pretty long before uh, we had, uh, you know, the war between... The Revolution. The yeah. Revolutionary War, that old, that old thing. Uh, it's it's had so many uh, things we can attribute to it that I could only really make a short list of eight things. But mm. we this this could go on and on. If, and if this was a podcast about Bellevue, it could go on for you know multiple it parts. It, it 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 really is huge. But uh, they had the first maternity ward in the U.S. in 1799. They popularized use of the hypodermic syringe in 1856. Uh, developed New York sanitary code in 1867. Okay, this is already when New York had millions of people, by the way. Like, New York was like five million people, and they had no sanitary code. Uh, so right after Civil War, they developed that. Uh, Bellevue's physician, Stephen Smith, made, was made the first commissioner of public health in 1868. And, you know, tied into the use of the hypodermic syringe from, uh, you know, about ten years earlier, 
He, institute, he instituted a national vaccination campaign, which we still have today. You know, you bring your kid to the doctor, he's got to get yeah. his MMR shots. You go to college, they got to make sure you got your immunization. This really, it's kind of starts here with Stephen Smith. Uh, identified tuberculosis as a preventable disease in 1889, which was huge. I mean, tu oh, yeah. tuberculosis used to just wipe you out. And no one knew how it was communicated. So many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have died worldwide from tuberculosis just probably in that century. So to find this out was a huge revelation to public health. Uh, first successful abdominal operation of a pistol shot wound <laughs> in 1904. I found that interesting for one reason, really, because uh, James Garfield, who I think was president around, I'm going to say, 1880-something, uh, he died of this. He died of an, a pistol shot uh, because doctors kept putting their fingers into the wound and they, they created sepsis. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, it, and it, it seems like such a small thing, like, you know, just either leave the bullet there or take it out. But it took, <laughs> it took like 30 years before they had the first successful operation uh, taking care of that. Uh, first successful cadaver kidney transplant in 1967. They developed a serum for immu immunizing hepatitis B in 1971. So they are always at the forefront of uh, immunizations, folks. Yeah. And they were integral in developing the triple drug cocktail used to treat HIV in 1996, which I think uh, Magic Johnson is still using, and pretty much anybody living with HIV is probably using that today. So a serious hospital, folks. This is a big deal for Frederick Wortham. He also uh, testified in court for the pedophile cannibal Albert Fish in 1935 and declared him insane. Yeah, and the, the insanity plea is uh, it's not as easy to get as uh, I think some people may think. This is an incredibly hard judgment to get passed, so Wortham, I, he was able to work it. He, he was obviously very well respected already. Absolutely. You know, uh, you know his pedigree. Uh, meant a lot and preceded him, yeah, yeah, and what he had done, and uh, also at this time too, declaring someone insane, it didn't mean they probably went to a place like Arkham Asylum. You know, they went to the uh, mental <laughs> ward, which was not a place you wanted to be. So, uh, you know, this wasn't. Don't, I don't want anyone to think Albert Fish got off light on this one. Yeah, it wasn't a country club stack. And then in 1946, he opened the Lafarge Clinic. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're going to take a break, folks, because we have been talking for a long time. So we're going to take a couple of minutes, and it's going to be a couple of seconds for you. When we get back, we will tell you all about uh, Frederick Wortham after 1946. You can have yes. vegetables, lots of them, on your table next winter. You can have your own fresh vegetables on your table this summer if you have your own Victory Garden. Yes, there's no restriction on home canning and home processing of vegetables and garden fruits and berries. Plan your victory garden now. Get your garden plot lined up. Get the advice of a garden expert if you need it. And be prepared to grow your own for victory. Join a garden club or community garden movement. Or share a garden with your neighbor. You can help win the battle of food production. You can help arm fighting men get the food they need. You can help save the vital metals used in commercial canning if you grow your own victory garden in 1943. For further information, write to Victory Gardens, Washington, D.C. Victory Gardens, Washington, D.C. So, uh, hey, we're back, everybody. Uh, we just had a wonderful break. Uh, yes. I, I went on vacation for a couple of weeks and uh, laid in the sand. Mm -hmm. So back to Frederick Wortham. Let's hear about this Lafarge Clinic that we teased moments ago. 
Yeah, Frederick Wortham, he worked uh, he worked a lot with uh, juveniles and uh, the public. He uh, founded that Lafarge Clinic. And uh, a little bit about the Lafarge Clinic. It was <laughs> named after uh, it was named after a French revolutionary and Marxist socialist uh, by the name of Paul Lafarge, who uh, was Karl Marx's son-in-law. He uh, spent his days running around France and Spain trying to uh, pepper dissidents with social uh, socialist ideals. Yeah, that was pretty much it. He ran back and forth between the two countries. Trying uh, to push his agenda. Un- un- until essentially people, I think, got sick of him sleeping on their couch. That was pretty <laughs> much it. And said, get the hell out of here. Yes, no more, no more. Uh, he wrote uh, The Right to be Lazy, which was published in 1883. And... Uh, Died in a suicide pact with his wife, which is Karl Marx's daughter, Laura. It, uh, he was 69 years old, and it was uh, 1911. And uh, from what we know, uh, Karl Marx didn't, didn't really care for the dude. Although, you know, father-in-laws, they don't usually like their son-in-laws so much. So it, it probably, wasn't, rule probably wasn't that crazy. But uh, <laughs> It wasn't personal. I, I, think, I think I might have to uh, take the right to be lazy to be my personal um, mantra. I don't know. You know is, there any, is there any candidate out there that's using that as their platform? Because <laughs> I sure would like that right. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, now, the funny thing is here, we have... Uh, We've got this clinic named named after a Marxist socialist, and uh, it, this is a time where uh, we were kind of not too friendly. Yeah, with, I mean, uh, with uh, you know the the socialists. Th- this is 1946, so USSR are officially our enemies. You know, the Cold War has begun now. Yep. Uh, and, and naming a, naming a clinic after uh, after one of them is uh, that's uh, kind of strange. Yeah. But uh, as as we said, I gotta think that uh, the, the the two reasons it wasn't a big deal. Number one, I'm sure the average person had no idea who Paul Lafarge was anyway, and, and didn't yeah. really care. And the other reason is this clinic being in Harlem kind of flew under the radar anyway. Uh, I don't think anyone really gave a crap what they called it. So no. uh, that that's, that's really my guess because as as we said, it would be kind of like naming an institution here the you know the Che Guevara Hospital for the uh, you know treatment of children's uh, measles or whatever. <laughs> so a little strange. Yeah, and uh, like you said, this was uh, this was in Harlem and uh, actually was set up in the basement of St. Philip's Church in Harlem, New York. That's right. St. Philip, by the way, is uh, Philip the Apostle. He was the patron saint of hatters. Hmm. I really nothing... You know, Lafarge turns out to be a lot more interesting than uh, Philip the Apostle, <laughs> frankly. But anyway, uh, this, this uh, institution, the Lafarge Clinic, was... Co-founded by novelist Richard Wright, he wrote Native Son and Black Boy, uh, 1940 and 1945, respectively, among many other titles. Very well-known author. Uh, if you're a fan of American literature, you certainly know who he is. Uh, and also, it was co-founded by Life Magazine staff writer Earl Brown, who began working at the New York Herald Tribune and was managing editor for the Amsterdam News. Uh, Amsterdam News is a Harlem-based newspaper. It still comes out today. It's sort of the black news for America. Uh, You see it only sold in black neighborhoods, but it's very well respected and will often report on things that mainstream press will not. Uh, And he was a Harlem leader who would serve on the city council for 11 years. You know, both these guys were very well respected in Harlem, very Mm -hmm. well respected African-American leaders at the time. So this gave the whole thing a lot of cachet. Uh, sure. It wasn't just some white German coming into Harlem to uh, set up a uh, clinic. Um, this was the first mental health facility in Harlem, and it was most likely the first mental health facility for almost any black American in any neighborhood in America. You know, in America. Sure. Uh, yeah. 
it, 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 this was not the kind of thing, you know, black people in those days, and obviously preceding this, this time, they weren't the first on the list to get uh, health care, mental or otherwise. So uh, this was really an unusual institution for its time, uh, years before, you know, 10 years before the civil rights era, uh, you know, where them set this up. Uh, a lot of mainstream hospitals wouldn't even treat black patients, but this hospital was unsegregated, both on the staff and the patient side, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to put that into context with what we have today. Uh, yeah. I'd say it's- in most hospitals, most of the nurses are not white. For example, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's so hard to, to actually get a, get across the importance of that uh, in in the time. It's just uh, just wasn't heard of. It, it, it was really uh, very forward thinking. Uh, you know, he was definitely um, just ahead of his time as far as, far as integrating uh, races in America. Uh, sure. This clinic concentrated on children, but it treated anybody, uh, anyone of all ages. It was mostly black and Hispanic teenagers. But uh, there were whites, there were older people. Uh, I think I read something that he did have a patient that was in his 70s. Uh, so, wow. you know, it really ran the gamut. And visits just cost 25 cents. There was no health insurance. And if there was uh, this neighborhood, they weren't getting it anyway. Nope. So you pay your quarter. And what do you get? You get psychoanalysis. Uh, mm-hmm. This is, you know... Still, something unusual, I think, to a lot of Americans, probably a lot of people around the world, was that you pay somebody money to go and talk to them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was not really a normal. That was not what we would, what they would consider medicine. A lot of people today wouldn't consider that medicine. Yeah, that's still it's still very contentious. It's I've said it before. It's a, it's a soft science, yeah. and uh, I think that's why uh, I think that's why a lot of people concentrate more on the pharmaceutical side of it. Yeah, because that's something that is, you know, that's something that's medical. It's not uh, necessarily psychoanalysis, and it produces an immediate, an immediate and palpable result. You know, as yeah, opposed to psychoanalysis, which kind of leaves you, you know, sometimes depending it, on it can leave yeah, you feeling shittier the, than when you started. <laughs> and depending on the discipline used by the psychoanalysis, it could take uh, it could take months, it could take years, it could take a lifetime to see changes. It's yeah. just uh, it's it's a it's very soft. So, uh, th- but this is he he applied this to fifteen hundred patients between nineteen forty six and nineteen fifty six in just ten years, which is a lot of people, especially doing this method. You know, this wasn't sure. just they weren't coming in for five minutes getting a shot in the arm. So this is interesting. Uh, and they used his uh, all the psychoanalysis used Wortham's method of creating these detailed case studies, including many aspects of a person's life, which included his home life education, hobbies, and the sexual proclivities. This was, even then, still not something you really discussed with your doctor. Uh, sure. Definitely, definitely not your regular physician and, you know, probably not your uh, psychoanalyst or your alienist, as they still might have, well, this would have been later, but uh, they would have <laughs> called them alienists back in the day. Uh, so he was... Uh, Definitely doing something brand new here, right up in Harlem. Uh, I just do want to point out, and we mentioned it before, Sigmund Freud is the co- the father of psychoanalysis. Yeah. But Wortham and then others after him expanded it over time. You know, I mean, now there's even more aspects they take into account, and they can do um, much more uh, medical, much more refined medical studies, and even get down to the genetics a lot better than they used to. Instead of just saying, "Well, your dad was a bricklayer." <laughs> so, so you're, you're a bricklayer. That's all. You know. Now they can do a lot more with it. But 
uh, you know, Wortham contributed quite a lot to this uh, field of psychoanalysis, and he's, you know, interesting. Where we are better off for it, I think. Certainly. So yeah, because like you said here, those those four aspects. I mean, people wouldn't even discuss those with their with their pastor. You know, yeah. it's like uh, this is. It's a whole new science coming out of uh, coming out of this branch of psychoanalysis. For sure. Uh, in that time, he also took you know this clinic took part in the reeducation of gay men, but this was normal for the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wirtham was forward thinking, but he wasn't you know light years ahead of himself or you know that I, forward thinking. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we don't know where he stood on that kind of. We, thing we don't well. really know. Uh, at that time, they people would have considered uh, homosexuality a brain deficiency. It, uh, it actually used to be in the. Uh, there's a the DSM is a is the listing of a it's a way you diagnose diagnose a mental illness uh-huh. and up until recently homosexuality was in it. So yeah, he, he so it was something you could actually diagnose as a mental illness. He, he so he he was just treating it like you treat any schizophrenia or whatever else, uh, you know. And when you really think about it, you know, first of all, obviously seeing recent events. Uh, Homosexuality isn't fully embraced in all parts of this country or world, but definitely even when we were kids, it was still subject to ridicule and whatever else, much more than it Absolutely. is today. So it's a slow and steady climb. Uh, but so he, he did that, and uh, this is something that uh, you turned up that I thought was fascinating. Lafarge Clinic undertook a study of the psychological effects of school segregation at the request of the NAACP. Uh, this study was conducted in Delaware in 1951, and it found that segregated school systems are psychologically harmful. This mm-hmm. is still a discussion today. Yeah. Uh, you know, schools were integrated, and then sort of over time, through uh, you know, getting into institutional racism, that is a much bigger subject than comic books. Uh, <laughs> but over time, it's sort of things have gone back to the way they were, sort of in a uh, unspoken segregation of a kind lot. Kind of, of an invisible hand type of a situation. Yeah. Uh, and the people are talking about today that this is psychologically damaging. You know, y- you can't understate how wild this was to even present these ideas to an establishment, a post-World War II establishment, to tell them that, hey, you know, segregation, you're actually, you know... You're doing more harm than you're good. You're doing more harm to this culture that obviously you don't give a shit about anyway. You know what I mean? It, it was really <laughs> it was really a crazy a kind of a study to undertake, very, like, revolutionary. I mean... Brave, I, yes. It, it, totally. It's hard for me not to not to paint Wertham as, as kind of a hippie or what we'd call a social justice warrior today, you know? I mean, sure. like, you know, really, like, putting his ass on the line for these pretty wild uh, studies. We've spent the past, you know, 20 minutes talking about the reputation he's built, yeah. and in at any given time he could he could lose that, and uh, this is not a light undertaking. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, uh, the research and testimony was part of the Brown versus Board Education in Topeka case, which did desegregate public schools. I'm going to say that that's was, amazing. That was 50, 58. You want to say 56, something like that. Uh, yeah. It, it was later, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's that that's incredible. You know, like they actually were able to use this scientific research. So uh, this guy, he was well respected, and he had done his, he had paid his dues, done his homework, uh, and the experience at the Lafarge Clinic led him to conclude, and I'm quoting here. Racism was not exclusively a social and political problem, but represented a community health problem. Now that is a very important statement because now he is not treating an individual. He's treating a community. 
Yep. And okay. he's integrating that community into a culture. Yeah, it's... Uh, it you plays know. on so many social psychology elements, including things like strain theory, and uh, it's 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 huge. It, it's it's going to play out later, though, because then you you say, you know, what, what gives him the credibility to do a book like Seduction of the Innocent, which we will mm-hmm. be talking about more in the next part. Uh, that was the book that first ever uh, really popularized. Uh, the lambasting of comics, you know, the anti-comics crusading, but he he was able to write a book like that because he had already established his concerns in the public health sector. People uh, knew who he was. Yeah, and 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 he was not just, you know, treating one group. He was treating everybody in a sense. He he was looking at maladies that were going to make all of society better. So our question is, Frederick Wortham, Chris, was this a good guy or a bad guy? That's a very good question. Oh, well, we may have more information in the next part. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we will definitely have more information where we will tell you more about Frederick Wortham and uh, his connection to the anti-comics crusade. But that's going to be it for us this week, everybody. Uh, if you enjoyed, if you didn't enjoy it, if you have more to tell us about Wortham, if you're related to Wortham, please write to us at weirdsciencedccomicsblog at gmail.com. Uh, of course, make sure to listen to the regular podcast every week at weirdsciencedccomics.com, where Chris and I still have a segment called The Cosmic Treadmill, where we read a, an old comic. Uh, I'm not sure what which one we'll be reading, which one you'll hear when this episode comes <laughs> yes. out, but we will have done one. Uh, you can follow me at Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I'm going to tell you here, I'll tell you there, you got to look at Chris's blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.blogspot.com. Just today, he put up a great one uh, for his Christmas in July week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a Batman and the Outsiders issue that was a little crazy, kind of dealt with a little uh, baby baby kidnapping, baby killing. <laughs> I don't really know how to put it. Uh, yeah, if that, if that whets your appetite, you better go check it out. Uh, so he puts up a new review every single day, so it's worth looking at. Um, and I think that's it for this week's weird comics history. You have anything else, Chris? No, this is a this is a this is a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> we have gonna... four more parts planned for this, folks. So make sure you're taking notes because there will and be that's a test. Being conservative. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we hope there will be just four parts. So uh, yeah, there there will be. Make sure you uh, show up to class on time, and we'll see you next week for more weird comics history. See ya. of a job to do, but you can bet that we'll see it through. We did it before, and we can do it again, and we will do it again. We're one for all, and we're all for one. They'll get a licking before we're done. Millions of voices are ringing, singing as we march along. We did it before, and we can do it again, and we will do it again. We'll knock them over, and then we'll get the guy in back of them. We did it before, we'll do it again.